celebrate the launch of David Rothkopf's new book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation by becoming a member today. This month, new members will receive a free signed copy of the book, along with the usual member benefits, including an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and select the option titled American Resistance. Upon successful checkout, you will receive a confirmation email with instructions on how to redeem the book. The book retails for $29, but is included with this membership option. You'll just pay for shipping. Please allow two to four weeks for shipping. Thank you very much. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another one of our special episodes devoted to a book we think you should read. I'm David Rothkopf. I'm your host. I'm in New York City. And we are joined today by Emily Tampkin, who is the U.S. editor at The New Statesman and the author of The Influence of Soros. Her new book is Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. It is a deeply thoughtful book and definitely not just one for Jews, although, you know, I'm a Jew and I enjoyed it. It's about the current state of an important segment of U.S. life and a better source than you might find, say, in any movies suggested by Kyrie Irving, who probably comes up more often than not in some of your interviews. Hi, Emily. Welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Let me start with a concept that I get, and uh, having read the book and admired it, I really think you did a great job but maybe some in the audience don't. So why is the concept of bad Jew or good Jew so resonant with Jews? You know, does it have something to do with the importance of guilt in Jewish culture? I mean, why is this a big deal? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. Why does this come up over and over and over again in Jewish history and in American Jewish history? And I think it's two things. One, It is a group, which means it is defined by who's in and who's out to a certain extent. And and being Jewish is a lot of things, but part of what it is, is religion. It's a practice. So there are certain rules that that you're theoretically meant to be adhering to, although people interpret that very, interpret all of them very differently. So, so part of it is that, but I also think being Jewish in America is, you know, part of it is how do you make yourself legible to the country more broadly? How do you make people understand what it is to be Jewish and keep your distinctiveness without sacrificing your security and your stability in this country? And that tension and the inability to agree on how you do that within and between American Jewish communities, I think, makes this a really salient concept. 
I wrote this book, uh, as you mentioned, my first book was on George Soros. And one thing that comes up a lot from not not just critics, the people, I, I think criticism is, is a wonderful thing, but sort of attacks on him. The attacks aren't really anti-Semitic because he's not really Jewish, because look at his relationship to Israel or look if it, you know, does he go to synagogue? And when I zoomed out, I wrote that book and started this one during the Trump years when you had literally the most powerful person in the country saying, what's wrong with these American Jews? Most of these American Jews, why aren't they voting for me? Look what I've done for Israel. This is wrong. Their politics are wrong. And so we have really clear examples of this, of this tendency right now in American political life. And I thought that zooming out and putting this unique moment in context and understanding that it's one of a series of unique moments might be helpful. One of the things at the core of Jewish identity is a conflicting impulse, right? Assimilate, don't assimilate. Become part of the culture you're in so you can succeed. Don't become too much part of the culture you're in or you'll lose your Jewish identity. And this has been made more complicated, I think, by the advent of the state of Israel. Do you agree with that? First of all, I think that we see this tension between the two, between the desire to be secure and the desire to be distinctive throughout American Jewish history. So before mass Jewish immigration to the United States, most American Jews are understood as Americans who pray differently. This is very safe. You know, this country has freedom of religion. This understanding will offer you rights and privileges. But what happens as more Jews come, particularly from Eastern Europe, is that they don't quite understand themselves that same way, right? They understand themselves as ethnically distinct or as a different people. So you have this tension between different groups of American Jews. And after World War II, when anti-Semitism was at an all-time high, which I think is really important to remember, that even as this country was fighting Nazi Germany, anti-Semitism here in this country was, was very pronounced. After you have American Jews able to take advantage of the GI Bill and move, up, move out to suburbs and, and really you know, have, having established themselves and, and living the American dream, and they're worried about the same thing. They're worried about, is this really legitimate? Is this really authentic? If we live in these, these big houses and just, and this is obviously not everybody was doing this, but many were. If we live in these big houses and just happen to go to synagogue instead of church, like, what does that mean for our Jewishness? I completely agree that the advent of the state of Israel has complicated it because now it's not just how do you relate to your own country and to your own government? It's also, and how do you add another country and another government into that? Early on in the 20th century, most American Jews were not Zionist because, as including the American Jewish Committee and groups we think of today as being so profoundly supportive of the state of Israel, because it was, it was the dual loyalty trope and trap, and they were worried that they would be seen as something other than American. Obviously, with World War II and the Holocaust and the creation of the state, that changes. After 67 and 73, support for Israel becomes much more pronounced. But, you know, there's also the reality that most American Jews are liberal and have developed one political identity. And Israeli Jews, as we saw in the most recent election, many have gone in a different direction. And so we have, you know, to go back to, to Trump's comments, what are really, what's really interesting about them in a, in a dark sort of way is that it's not just reverse of the dual loyalty trope. It's not just that, you know, to, be, to really be an American Jew, you have to be loyal, not just to the United States, but also to Israel. But it's you have to be loyal to me and to my political party because we're so good. You know, look, look what I've done for the Jews and for, quote unquote, your country. So it, it's complicated how American Jews are meant to relate, not just to this country, but, but to geopolitics, which adds another layer. I have to say, for the, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, 
Emily and I worked together at Foreign Policy. So you may know this. I, I don't know that I told this story at the time, but I once worked with Henry Kissinger. And right after the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, he was asked to go and give a speech in Boston or something like that. Um, that Rabin was supposed to give, but Henry was the, the last minute replacement. People introduced him and said, you know, all the things he did. And then they said, and, you know, here is Henry Kissinger, who is a great friend of the Jews. And, you know, Henry is Jewish, you know, who, you know, came out of Germany. And he thought it was hilarious that here he was being identified primarily as a friend of the Jews rather than actually being Jewish. And in some respects, that counted for more with some of these groups, right? That you were in internalizing what was perceived as a higher Jewish agenda. I think one of the big items right now that I have a lot of trouble with, and you touch upon it in the book, is this debate about is being anti-Zionist anti-Semitic? And as it happens, the head of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, was my special assistant in commerce. And so I've known him a long, long time and we're friends. But they've adopted this view that anti-Zionism, which is a political thing, is anti-Semitism, which is a religious and cultural thing. And I'm personally troubled by it because I personally am anti-Zionist. I, you know, I, would, I, I, I don't buy the idea of religion in any state, right? How big does that particular conundrum loom in this divide between what's a good Jew and what's a bad Jew today? Oh, it looms uh, in- incredibly large. I would say two things to this. The first is that um, the sort of specific point is that I think many American Jewish institutions, like really mainstream institutions and establishments today, who purport to speak for the quote unquote American Jewish community to the extent that such a thing actually exists, have really foregrounded support for Israel and criticizing those who criticize Israel. They are doing this at a time where most American Jews, including by research, you know, we, we know this from research put out by some of these same institutions, see anti-Semitism and the great anti-Semitic threat in the United States today as coming from the political right. Now, people always say anti-Semitism does not have one political home, no one ideology. True. Absolutely. There's anti-Semitism in every corner of the political realm. But right now we have one political party that is pushing a lot of this rhetoric, these tropes pushing it into our political discourse and institutions focused first and foremost on on Israel. So this creates a dissonance between these organizations and many of the people they say that they're representing. And then the other broader thing, you know, I think when we think of how the term bad Jew is used, I see it as being used in the religious and the political realm. The religious realm, you know, it's it's a religion. There are certain things you're as I said, meant to do to observe. And so if it's, I think some people say, oh, you know, if I don't, I didn't go to shul this Shabbat, I'm a bad Jew. Or, oh, I don't keep kosher, I'm a bad Jew. I don't, I, I personally don't really, I, I don't use the term. I don't like the term. I don't think it's a useful framing. But I do understand if you have decided that your life is going to have this, this sort of halakhic influence and that it's going to be centered in that way, like that I do get. What I find very problematic is when people then take that and put it on the political. So to take one really concrete example that I, that's in the book, 
2021, a person wrote an op-ed and said that it was responding to a study that said many young Jews, many young American Jews are very critical of Israel. And basically this person said, yes, many of these people may be halakhically Jewish, but they are intermarried. And that means they don't really care about being Jewish. And that means that their views on Israel don't count. So this is the, this is taking this, this religious, like this religious language and this concept of, oh, you're not observing properly and applying it to politics. And part of the reason I think this is so problematic is that I know that you or I could look at a Jewish text or a piece of Jewish history, American or otherwise, and we could draw two different political conclusions, right? I, I could say like my Jewish values say that this is appropriate politically. And I'm sure that Greenblatt or anybody else could say something entirely different. And to, to not just try to use that to win the debate, but to use it to end the debate and say that you're not really a Jewish interlocutor or you're a self-hating Jewish interlocutor or you're a bad Jewish interlocutor, I find it, I find it pretty disingenuous. It is disingenuous. And I mean, I think, you know, one of the core conclusions you get from your book and one of the core conclusions you get from life, if your eyes are open, is that Judaism, like anything else, is kind of a rainbow, right? There's all different flavors and some are more religiously observant and some are not religiously observant, but they live up to Jewish ideals better than some of the people who are religiously observant. And, you know, you you describe it in the book, you know, you have chapters on different kinds of Jewish groups as a way of illustrating it, you know, whether it's Zionists or civil rights activists or right-wingers or the labor movement or refugees or whatever. But there does seem to be a kind of a, a drift as a result of this politicization where we get this strange phenomenon of some of the most extreme right-wing groups, right-wing Jews, affiliating themselves with anti-Semites in the midst of this Republican movement that you talked about, the MAGA movement, and they've become these strange allies, such as with you know evangelicals who are active supporters of Israel, but not for any reason that actually turns out well, for the Jews, and yet, you know, I mean, they uh, want to play out a, a narrative that ends up being bad for the Jews. So, you know, how do how do we explain it? And is is part of the reason the book is so resonant today is that that there are so many sort of publicly visible Jews who are morally or politically compromised. I think that. Part of it is that we don't all have the same, you know, we talk about a rise in anti-Semitism, but the truth is that we don't all, we're not all using the term in the same way. So right-wing Jews who are, or take one concrete example, um, people were, some people were up in arms about the Ben and Jerry's decision not to sell ice cream in the West Bank. I did not take that to be an anti-Semitic move at all. Um, and it was, it was really front and center from mainstream American from certain mainstream American Jewish groups. So we're not even having the same conversation when we're, when we're talking about like, what is, what is a threat? There's part of that. And then, uh, which, which is another way of saying that I think different people have different priorities. You know, if you're a right-wing Jew and, and what really matters to you is that Israel is criticized as little as possible, or that the price for criticism of Israel is as high as possible, then you're going to, your alliance will be with, certain politicians in the United States today. 
And I, I guess I would also say that two other things. The first is that I asked people throughout this book, well, what, when I say bad Jew, what do you think? And the most common answer was, I think of myself, but another very common answer was uh, Stephen Miller. Now, I personally would not say that Stephen Miller is a bad Jew, because again, I know that there are parts of Jewish history that, that he could t- point to and use to justify his behavior, that there are, you know, they're not my Jewish values, but they are Jewish values. That said, I think it's horrible, right? I, I don't think that he should be anywhere near writing policy. And I think me saying that should be good enough. Like, I don't need to, to say that he's not Jewish to say that I think that he was a horrible person to be in the White House. So that's one. The other thing I'll say is that there have been people throughout history who have, who have been friends and colleagues, friends with and colleagues of people who pushed anti, anti-Semitic rhetoric. Henry Ford boasted about how many Jewish employees he had. Charles Lindbergh and Father Coughlin, like they had, you know, they had Jewish friends and Jewish people they were close to, which they pointed to. Do I think this normally is a, is like, is, is the long-term sharp move for Jewish people? No, I don't. But people throughout, uh, throughout American Jewish history, there have been people who have made this particular choice. Kissinger worked for Nixon, who railed against the Jews controlling Washington and the media. You know, it, it, it happens a lot. And in fact, in a society like this, it's often Jews who find themselves because of their desire to get ahead or succeed or lead a decent life to having to work and accept side by, you know, next to them, people with these kind of dark values. And uh, some of that's been illustrated recently with the hubbub, you know, we had in like a week, kind of anti-Semitism week, and you had Kanye, and you had Kyrie Irving, and you had Trump once again with these, Jews had better watch out, you know, I'm better for the Jews than they, than they are. And you had Doug Mastriano's wife going, we're more Jewish, or we're better for the Jews than the Jews that might vote for us, right? To what do you account this this little spike? So first, I think I would say when people say, when, like, when Trump says, oh, why aren't American Jews voting for me? Or when people like Doug Mastriano's wife say, like, well, you know, we're, we're, like, we're, we're the really Jewish ones, or we're, more, we're better than the Jews are. To me, it just displays a deep ignorance, American Jews. Like it, it just like you just don't know what you're talking about, or you know one very small sliver of American Jewishness. Because if you knew the history, you you knew like a, a variety of American Jews, you would understand that we live here, and that we have many interests, some of which are conflicting, but that only four percent of American Jews uh, vote based on Israel and Israeli politics, according to recent polling. So it, it's just it to me, it comes from a, a place of deep ignorance. And then the other thing that I would say is that. You know, I've never been surprised by anti-Semitism on the personal level. This is something that I encountered a lot growing up and that I think many of us have in our day-to-day lives. But what has surprised me for not now, has been surprising over the past several years is the extent to which it is now in our political and cultural discourse. And I think that once once you put it out there, it, it invites more. So all this, all of this is to say that the more people talk about globalists and elitist cabals and use these little dog whistles, the more fertile the ground is for more of that. And I would hope that it was very striking to me that Kanye West in saying like the Jews control everything, the Jews in the media, the Jews in Hollywood, the mistake, I mean, from a, in terms of not getting in trouble standpoint, the mistake he made was to actually say the word Jews and Jewish. 
because that same mentality that like, oh, the Jews in our politics and the Jews in our in our media, the Jews in entertainment is, is said all the time by people. They just use these little code words like globalist or, you know, like elitists or, or and then they have plausible deniability. And I think one thing that I hope that comes from that week is that we know that Tucker Carlson edited out certain parts of that interview to make sure that they didn't step over that very fine line. We, we can all hear the dog whistles. We don't need for the dog whistle to go like Jewish in order to, to call it out as, as wrong and is, and is doing something hurtful to our politics, not just for Jewish people, although obviously for us, but like, I think this is really important. A society that's anti-Semitic is a society that, like, think about what it is. You're, you're saying that there's a secret group controlling things. That's going to make you paranoid. That is going to make you hateful. That is going to make you distrustful of the world as you actually see it, as of your neighbors, as you actually know them. But you have things like, oh, Soros is controlling Black Lives Matter protests or Jews bringing in migrants. We're now, it's, it's not just anti-Semitic, it's racist, it's xenophobic. And so I hope that now that it's in the open, we can, we can call it out for, for what it is. So I'll, I'll get off my soapbox now. No, no, you're supposed to be in your soapbox. But, you know, I mean, I, I, my book is about the deep state, right? Why did that conspiracy theory emerge? And I try to debunk it. But it, it's, a, it's also akin to the fake news trope. And that is groups sometimes identify the ones they fear. The, 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 you know, and they try to find ways to discredit them, whether it's legitimate news media or public servants who are respecting their oath of office. Or the fact that, you know, 80% of the Jews tend to vote for Democrats, and, and that tends to be a, a thing. Now, just to go back, you know, and sort of to, I don't want to make it too much about my personal experience, but you can't help it. You know, my father's a Holocaust survivor. He came here. 36 members of his family were killed. He settled in New Jersey. We lived in, like, idyllic-ish. New, I don't know if there's any part of New Jersey that's idyllic, but thought that that was behind him. And then when I was a little kid, people started to draw swastikas on the driveway. And during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he told me that the family down the block that built a bomb shelter invited everybody to join them in the bomb shelter, except them because they were Jewish. And, you know, these things continue throughout our lives. It's a theme, you know, and, and Jews are aware, even when people are not. Like, I often got in a cab in New York, talk to the cab driver, and the guy will say, or someplace else, you, you have a very New York sense of humor. Or, are you a lawyer? Both those things mean you're a Jew, you know? Right? You know, that's kind of code. And I'm, like, aware of the code. The question is, is it getting worse? I think it's hard to measure in that we have social media now, which we didn't have in years and decades prior. So how do you measure the amount of vitriol that's expressed when there is this medium that there wasn't before? What we do know is that is that people, Jewish people, perceive a rise in anti-Semitism. So we know that people are increasingly afraid. We also know that most American Jews, thankfully, have not experienced personal violent anti-Semitism, which I say not to downplay it, but I, I just think it's so, we live in such scary times like such truly surreal, frightening times that it's important to remind ourselves that we are still relatively safe. And, and to my mind, more importantly, 
you know, I, I understand why people say it when, when things like Kyrie comes out with a tweet or Kanye says something that why isn't anybody saying anything? And I, I understand that it can feel like that, but I also want to note that a lot of people are saying things and not just Jewish people. And as I said, I think that these hatreds are entwined in American politics today. And I also personally believe that the way out of it is also entwined, that that we can't sort of fight anti-Semitism on a Monday and then racism on Tuesday and xenophobia on Wednesday. And that, it, first of all, for some people, we should say these are intertwined personally struggles, right? Like there are Jews of color, there are Jews who are immigrants, there are gay Jews who are feeling the brunt of, of homophobia. Um, but just for all of us as people, these, these struggles are entwined. And so I think we fear that it's getting worse. And also there are still people who, who, who don't want us to be afraid, right? And who, who are offering support and solidarity. And, and one thing that I have thought of a lot in working on this book is how do I extend solidarity both to Jewish people who don't think like I do, right? Who disagree with me profoundly, who maybe don't even think that I'm Jewish. How can I still support them when they're feeling afraid and when they're under attack? And also, how can I be there for other communities and other kinds of people in the same way that I would want them to show up for me? Yeah, those are important questions. I wish we could go on and on about this. This is obviously an issue that resonates with me, but I think it needs to be an issue that resonates with anybody else. The, The reality is you can tell a great deal about the health of a society or the values of a society by how it treats its component parts, and in particular, how it treats minorities, how it treats groups who are unlike the others in one way or another. And the story of Jews, which you tell over a 100-year period, traces, it reflects not only that story, but echoes the story of other minority groups. And the ways the group turns against itself, the way some issues are politicized, how it translates into violence and prejudice, these are things we need to understand because whether the trend line is up or down, we're not in a great place right now. Not if you're a Jew, not if you're a person of color, not if you're LGBTQ+, not if you have a political view that, that a you know, significant number of people don't adhere to. Your book gets into it in a very smart and thoughtful way. And so I really strongly recommend that anybody out there go and get Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. And if you're at it and the, you know, Soros globalist tropes are getting under your skin, you want to know a little bit more about that. Emily's prior book, The Influence of Soros, is also deeply illuminating. Thank you, Emily, for joining us. Good luck with the book. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on sometime soon to talk some more. Bye-bye.